There is a story about two ancient desert monks who had committed themselves to a vow of permanence at their monastery. Though they had pledged to stay at their monastery indefinitely, they longed to travel and explore the world that was now unobtainable. So they came up with a plan. Every six months, they would sit and elaborately map out the details of a trip to some part of the world. Every detail was considered, and they had before them the directives for how they would fulfill their extravagant desire. Once they were finished with their plan, they would then return to their duties and, six months later, would plan out another trip, as they never actually executed the first one. Again and again, they continued this cycle of enjoying the excitement of potential without ever having to make it a reality. Their plan for change always stayed before them. This is Becoming Human, and my name is Tyler Kleberger, and really this just exists to offer us a way to discover the world more fully so we can better traverse it. Is this worth your time? I don't know. I'm not an expert in anything. I'm just obsessed with this process. So I hope that you'll find it beneficial, and today we're going to talk about a subject that I, for some reason, really like talking about. And it's the idea of change and resistance. Because why doesn't change tend to go very well? And there's actually three reasons. So that's what we're going to explore today. Let's get into it. Let's learn. Let's grow. And let's become a little bit more human. You have this story about the desert monks, and uh, it's actually a story that, that's been passed around quite a bit, um, but it articulates something about the general human disposition towards change that I just, I just really enjoy. You know, how many people sit down and they do New Year's resolutions, and they have these grand plans, and then it doesn't happen, and then the next year they do it again. And we just keep going in this cycle. Often we will put in front of ourselves this great idea for who we're going to be and what we're going to do and how we're going to make it happen. And sometimes these plans get very specific and then it never happens. But there's actually something going on here. And it's the idea of what I call orbital resistance. So let's ask the question. Last episode, we took time to do the hard work of what's the destination? Where does this need to go? And I want to be clear that while I gave you the phrase universal flourishing, I tried to point out some other avenues people approach. I, I want to be clear that there's no absolute answer to that. And honestly, as this podcast continues to go, it's just a way of continuing to fill out that image. But you need to have something in front of you. And as you continue to uh, make changes, 
Keep having those destinations that will shape the routes that you take and the movement you make towards where you're trying to go. But you have to know where you're going. Within that, though, now we need to ask the question, do you actually want to go there? Do you actually want to change? Now, this story comes uh, from the Christian tradition in a, a book called The Gospel of John. There's this really fascinating story that I, I felt actually articulates this really well. There's a story about Jesus and this man who's been lame for the majority of his life. And he sits by this pool that was supposedly capable of offering healing to anyone who entered the waters. So he's been laying by this pool, waiting for the waters to turn. And then the goal is, okay, then he needs to get in and then he'll be healed. But every time the waters begin to move, he was never fast enough to get into those waters. And then the opportunity was over. So one day, Jesus, this messianic figure, approaches. And the lame man knew that uh, material and physical healing was possible through Messiah. So he tells Jesus a story of how he can never quite make it into the waters. And Jesus asks a rather poignant and challenging question. Do you want to be healed? Because there's a chance that the man doesn't. And it's actually a common motif throughout the Hebrew scriptures, right? So like think about the story of Exodus and Israel after they've been liberated from Egypt, they're wandering around the desert and they asked to go back to Egypt where they had familiarity and knew where their food was coming from. They would rather be slaves with familiarity than free with uncertainty. And so Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? Because there's a chance that we don't. We don't like change, even if it is good change. And I know this is almost a cultural trope. What I want to do today is to underscore that there are actual reasons why. And if we can understand the reasons why we don't like change, we will better confront and combat those forms of resistance as we try to make good, healthy changes in our lives. But you see this everywhere. Like, think of the first film that was shown in theaters, right? It was a train moving towards the camera. The theater emptied because people were scared of it. This was a new thing. They had not been able to have this experience before. And they thought they were going to get ran over by a train. Or, uh, I love this story. The first time instant replay was used in a football game, there were scores of viewers who called the network during the game because uh, they were confused as to how the same team kept scoring over and over again, and it looked like the exact same play. It, it, it just didn't make sense. They saw, thought something was wrong. They, they were experiencing something new. Something that today has changed into something quite normal. And there was some resistance to it. Or, you know, the cliche story about the riot that after, happened after Stravinsky played Rite of Spring for the first time. There's a deep-seated human propensity to resist change. So change is natural, but we also naturally resist it. And I think it's important to recognize if we can understand why, 
we will better mitigate this natural propensity in our lives. So, reason number one. We resist change because change is disruptive. We talked before about the sociological role of predictability and stability within human consciousness. There are these two dominant drives that kind of determine our behavior in various situations. So we're naturally conservative, at least behaviorally. We search for order and coherence and familiarity because we want to survive. Uncertainty and chaos are not helpful for us to survive. And, and you can see how sociologically and anthropologically this traces itself back to more primitive cultures where the more predictability and stability you could harness, the better of chances you had of surviving because the world was immensely not predictable or stable. What happens, though, is that kind of is hardwired into us to be safe and secure. The unknown is feared. We prefer charted territory over uncharted territory. But this isn't just the case sociologically. We can see how change is disruptive to us and therefore why we resist it biologically as well, which kind of affirms why this is a sociological phenomenon. So, uh, I, I, I'm, again, I've said this before. I'm not a scientist. I try to read this stuff, though. There is conversation on what's called the triune brain. And the idea is that you have three concentric circles of your brain, and, and they're not perfect circles. I, I understand that much about the brain. But each circle contains various parts that make up your human identity. That gives you a human brain. And each part, as it, as it moves outward, has increased complexity that's more and more unique to humans. So the outermost part of your brain, uh, often referred to as the neocortex, this is where your ability to think comes from, to attribute meaning to things, to uh, go through complex processes in your head. And only the most intelligent creatures have this. And humans have the most intricate version. Now, start going in. In that middle section is the limbic part of the brain. And this is predominantly mammalian. And so the ability to care, to take action, purpose of action, uh, to have experience connection, that all comes from there. And then you get to the central core of your brain. And I've heard people refer to this as the reptilian part of your brain because even lizards have this. And this is where all of your involuntary, the natural process of creatures like adrenaline and fight or flight, is where this comes from. And that desire to survive that we see in almost every creature, at least to some extent, comes from this part of your brain. The drive for survival to make your species continue to be as predictable and stable as possible it's in lizards and you. And so we set up systems and methods and norms and values and procedures, which is what we would call culture, by the way, to make survival easier. And we create these boxes of familiarity in order to mitigate uncertainty. 
And so someone who sets out to change those established scripts, well, it's messing with our stuff. And it's interesting here that when you talk about creativity, creativity is simply working outside of those scripts. The things that have been set up, which we need to we need to name, have been set up with good intentions to survive well. When when creativity happens, it's transcending those boxes. And people don't necessarily like it, at least at first. This is why I think of somebody like Vincent van Gogh, whose artwork is some of the most recognizable today. It's worth a ton of money. Vincent van Gogh died broke. He, he had at most maybe two, but most people agree one painting sold while he was alive. And, and some of the commentary on that is he was ahead of his time. Because people function behaviorally in a very conservative manner. Now, let's move this further. There's a theory called structural adaptation theory by Marshall Scott Poole. And uh, this is a great way to understand this movement of culture. Because, you know, like we said, we set up these systems and methods, norms, values, and we set those up for predictability and stability. And I said... That's actually a way to help define culture. The very foundation of culture is a group of people searching to create predictability and stability. And so we produce structures and social systems, which you could call scripts, to make life and surviving easier. But what this theory points out is that every time you create a structure, it creates a change because it leads to new formalities and norms and rules. So, for example, we create the Internet to help make living easier. But in establishing the norm of the Internet, we now introduce new things that upset the predictability and stability. And now we need to find ways to circumvent that to bring more predictability and stability. So a new norm or a script creates the very problem that we are trying to avoid. We produce a new structure and a new system, and this pattern continues indefinitely, and this is why culture is always changing. So the new structures that are introduced, it brings with it new rules. So so just think about the way people dress. That's constantly changing, or the way people communicate, or the idea that you eat three meals a day. Those all were introduced as new things to help provide predictability and stability, but then also led to its own unpredictability and instability. And now we have to adapt to the new formal norm, and it continues on and on and on. The scripts that we used to define a chaotic world causes us to continue the process of living in a chaotic world. So what structural adaptation theory tells us is that As we continue to make sense of things, to capture things, to slow things down, we actually keep things moving. And this tension between consistency and disruption forces us to continue to interact with this resistance we have to change. And the resistance just seems like something that we have naturally told ourselves is going to continue to happen because the process is going to continue to happen. Another perspective that I really like within this conversation is uh, Yuri Brofenbrenner's bioecological theory. 
uh, Ruffenbrenner was a child psychiatrist. Some people call, actually call this the babushka theory because it's like nesting dolls. And what he said was that our environment exists in layers. So you have microsystems. This is the day-to-day life that you live, right? So the interactions that are close to you, family, friends, self. Then you have the mesosystem, which is the relationships between two or more microsystems. So a community, a team, a work situation, or larger groups verging on the public. Then you have the exosystem, which is places and groups that aren't directly a part of your individual micro life that you don't directly interact with or affect, but that affect you. So a local government or even uh, a larger state government would be an example of an exosystem. And then you have the macro system, which encompasses, it's, it's the final nesting doll of the babushka, right? It encompasses all of those different layers. And this is general culture. And what he says about the macro system is that it's the most powerful because it creates the norms that dictate your life, even though you didn't come up with them. It's the water that we swim in. And we just assume, well, this is how it is. And we're often unaware of how the macro system is affecting us, even though we're subjected to it. And why this is important within the idea of change and resistance is that there is a script we live by that makes life easier, that offers predictability and stability, and it becomes the default. And when we try to mess with the script, whether it's the script of our individual life or larger social scripts, it gets resisted because messing with those norms is like treason. But what if the script fails? which as structural adaptation theory tells us, it's going to because the new, the, the formation of a script creates new norms and values that now we have to take into account and resist and fight with so that we can uh, achieve that homeostasis that, that we desire. But even in the script failing, to try to change it is to try to go against the very natural state that even biologically a large group of people have. Or what if... The script doesn't promote the best life and best world possible. And you could maybe use the word tradition for script. And there, we talked about this when, uh, two episodes ago. That tradition seems like a very nostalgic way to interact with reality. But it makes sense. There, there's a reason why we hold on to the way things were. There's a reason why we ought to look backwards and root ourselves in where we come from. But it's a problem when it gets stagnant and when it's static. And I want to be on record saying that if you're just trying to mess with scripts just for the sake of being able to upend tradition, that might not be the best approach. However, Any script is going to run into problems because a script constantly is being changed by the script itself and it won't stay the same. Resuming a previous script then in a new landscape because change is inevitable will counter the very survival the script is meant to support. This is why whether it's social movements or new technology or just new ways of doing things or new culture like the instant replay or, or a movie in a theater for the first time or a new form of music, it's often rebelled against. 
because of this idea of the script of the macro system and structural adaptation theory. Now, let's start looking at another component of this. Uh, there's a creativity scholar, Edward de Bono, and he has a name for this. He calls it a self-maximizing system. Think of a river and how a river entrenches itself in terrain over time. So the more a river flows, the more it digs out and erodes the ground so that it takes on a more permanent shape in that spot. So if you have a river going down a mountain, uh, that happens because water begins to flow and weathering and erosion happens and it continues to dig out and eventually becomes a very formal shape of a river. So then if you went back to the top of that mountain and you took a bunch of water and you just dumped it out, it's probably going to follow the same line that the water had embedded in the landscape previously. And this is a way to consider what's going on with culture and norms and values and the things that we are resistant to. The way that Edward de Bono discusses this is what we tend to do as humans is whatever has worked or whatever we're used to, it's like a hole and we continue to dig that same hole deeper because that's where we're comfortable. And so we're more willing to stay in the familiar than to move outside of the current norm and dig a new hole somewhere else. We're just like water where we're going to follow the embedded terrain that's been established instead of seeking out new ways to go down the mountain. When the script is working, this is fine. When the script is not working or it's even causing problems, self-maximizing systems will only further enhance the very problems they were intended to solve, which is to give us predictability and stability. So we need to be aware of these scripts because it's going to help us see why we might resist certain things. We also need to name what those macro systems are. That which is defining and determining an existence for us because it's offering that predictability and stability. And we need to be willing to imagine what all new scripts need to be because those new scripts are going to happen anyways. See, change is necessary because it's natural. But we have to be willing to see change as an opportunity. And we have to confront our innate reluctance to avoid change because fear of the unknown. Like even our brain is skeptical of this. And we need to see that when you are trying to change something in your life, you're trying to change something in your community, you're trying to change something culturally, you're trying to introduce something new, you have to know it's going to be resisted. And it makes sense that it is resisted. But the only thing we can do is work with that resistance. We resist change because it is uncertain and stressful and goes against our very nature. We resist change because it disrupts our scripts. Now, second reason that we resist change. We resist change because change is a loss. And this is very evident in the first reason that we gave, that we can sense that we're losing something and that's a bit scary and that's disruptive. 
And we don't like that. But now this one goes further because it's the idea that when something changes, we actually lose something. And we don't want to lose something. When I was in second grade, I moved from uh, the house that I had always lived in. When I was born, that's the house I grew up in. In second grade, uh, my family moved. and We were just moving across town to a different house in the same area. So it wasn't a big move. But I have this really vivid memory that I'm standing in the driveway. And the house had been cleared all day. We had been loading up boxes onto this trailer and driving it and unloading it and coming back. And finally got to the part where the house is empty. There's some rummages of trash and random pieces of different objects sitting around that we had to go and pick up. But then for the last time, I walk out the door, my mom locks it, and now we're outside. And I'll never go in that house again. And I remember standing in our driveway. In our driveway of this house, there was a garage in the back, and the driveway actually went right along the side of the house up to the street. And so we go out the back door, we lock it, and we're walking up the driveway alongside of the house. And I remember as a second grader, I just stopped and I started crying. And I couldn't help it, and I didn't I didn't even know why. I just started crying. Why? Does a second grader cry in the middle of the driveway when they're moving? Now, real quick, let's look at ecosystems. So let's take a break from that story. Uh, if you think about a biosphere of creatures and plants, okay, they form a common identity in a particular place. And they have a food chain and uh, food chain and symbiotic relationships and various life cycles, and that becomes a, an, an ecosystem in a specific geographical area. Now, there's a huge issue that people are still trying to figure out and place within historical patterns. What happens when an invasive species enters into that established ecosystem? So some, some sort of species from the outside migrates in and is unfamiliar to the systems that had been established in that ecosystem. It doesn't just change the ecosystem. The, the invasive species doesn't just add itself to the existing ecosystem. It changes the whole thing. It is now, just because of one invasive species, it is now a completely different ecosystem. So for us as humans, the homogenous state is ideal. Okay, this is the predictability and stability issue. We prefer less involved, more controlled, and more consistent ways of being because they're easier to navigate. And so as we're pursuing this, it creates norms and patterns, the script, where creating predictability and stability actually creates new norms and it adds a dynamic what happens with us culturally, but this also happens with you as an individual, is when something changes in the ecosystem of our life, it is like an invasive species that doesn't just add itself to the experience of our life. It completely changes the whole thing. 
when we add a new habit, when we add new information to our life, when, when uh, something in our neighborhood changes, when there's a leadership change in a local or regional or national setting, when, when you have a new baby, it makes everything different. It's a whole new thing now. The new thing is not added. It makes the old thing gone. Like when your whole world shifts, you have to realize that things won't be the same anymore. And even if it's a really good thing, something that you like, it's still a loss. That world is gone. And this is why I think as a second grader, even though I didn't know any of this was happening, crying in the driveway because I could recognize deep in my bones that something was over. This often keeps us from changing because we yearn for how it used to be, because we understand that we're going to lose something that we have come to know and possibly even come to love. But even when we're in bad situations, why do we still cling to how things are? Because loss scares the hell out of us. The familiar is easy and known, even if it's not healthy. And we don't want that disruption, but we also don't want to lose how things are. Change is like a new species invading our ecosystem, which means it is a loss. So we resist it because reconfiguring our known world is a daunting task. We resist change because change is a loss. And we have to see that when somebody has a really unhealthy habit and and they, they say, yeah, I know I need to do this, but I can't. Or even when society and we look around and we go, this ain't working y'all. And then we get confused as why wouldn't, why wouldn't the person just choose healthier habits? Right, especially if we're we're looking for predictability and stability, and the way things that you're the way you're doing things right now is actually killing you or destroying society. Why wouldn't we gravitate towards the new thing? And and this is where we also have to realize that this other factor is playing a role, and we don't want to lose something. The the story I told from the Gospel of John. Does he want to be healed? Well. He might not want to be healed because the entire way he has known the world will then be over. Change is a loss. Now the third reason that we resist change. We resist change because change is slow. So you've got the issue that change messes with our stuff, messes with what is known, and, and, and we don't really like that. Um, and, and just biologically, we don't like that. And that actually helps us see why a lot of change is resisted. But then you would go, well, we would choose healthy things because that's going to help promote our livelihood, right? Well, no, because even an unhealthy thing, losing it is scary. This last one, though, change being slow, I think articulates why most of us struggle with making changes, especially after we start them and we have that great intention. So just think about something changing slowly. 
you, you see this with people who, uh, like if you've ever built a structure or you built a new house or something like that, it takes a lot of time. And I often think about uh, the this tension of even good things just take so long to the point that it can be disorienting. Is like imagine the cathedrals, the beautiful Gothic cathedrals that were built in Europe. Somebody would start working on that project knowing that they wouldn't see its completion because it took so much time. And when we think of change, especially when we have this strong motivation to change something and to move in this beautiful direction, right? Like you've set your teleological destination. You see that you've affirmed it. You've got it as your goal. You're doing the Pygmalion effect and all that. And we get to this point where we realize it's not going to happen all at once. Right? We start out the trip and we're going from Ohio to California. And it, at first we're going like, yeah, this is so exciting. But eventually like you get to Illinois and you're like, this is taking forever. Is this ever going to be done? And that slowness, it's daunting. It's like entering into a mess and you, your goal is to clean the whole mess and you see that future on the horizon, but you can't deal with the whole mess at once because change is hard and it happens slowly. The world is going to change, but it's not going to happen all at once. Transforming your life, it ain't going to be immediate. Healing those bruised relationships, it's going to take time. Bringing flourishing to your community, yeah, it's going to be a process. We have to understand that change is less like a magic show, and it's more like a cliff being carved out by repeated crashing of waves over centuries and centuries. Your life and the world is like the erosion of the Grand Canyon. It's going to take time, and it's often going to feel like you're losing, and that it's never going to happen. I think about all of these, when we first started the series, I said, think about something in your life that has changed. Chances are that it took time, that it was a process that unfolded and possibly continues to unfold. Like, how did you become you? It's taken a while. It's been a long journey. And that for us, especially when we are trying to start out new, we're not only facing biological resistance, we're not only facing cultural resistance, we're facing a resistance that is overwhelming and daunting. Anne Lamott has this just wonderful image where she says, grace is not a run and it is usually not even a walk. Often, Grace is simply a slow scooch across the floor. That, that's what change is like. And that is really discouraging because we have these vast plans and then we enter a grueling and unromantic process. Um, I live near Toledo, out in rural northwest Ohio, and we have a wonderful museum, the to, uh, Toledo Museum of Art. And uh, they recently, a couple years ago, uh, got a new piece of work that is these neon lights that set in this dark sector of the museum. And it just says, 
Be Afraid of the Enormity of the Possible. It's a work by uh, Alfredo Jarre from Chile, and it's absolutely mesmerizing. And, and it's hypnotic, which is, I think, the effect that not only the work itself, but the message of the work is trying to say. That when we're staring at possible change, it is possible, but it's enormously possible. And that has a way of startling us and slowing us down. Seeing the end goal is easy. Traversing the landscape screams for us to turn back. And our response is often to simply stay in the mess that is overwhelming rather than cleaning it. I call this the principle of the lingering dishes, that the more you let the dishes in your sink build up, the less likely you are to even do them. We resist change because it would just be easier not to. Because change is difficult and dauntingly slow. Like, do you want to be healed? Yeah, I think so. Do you want to change? Yeah. Do you want to move ever and ever closer to that flourishing version of your life and humanity and the world? Yeah. But you are up against great resistance. It is going to be a difficult, uncomfortable, slow process. And with our propensity for the familiar and the fear of loss, we have this cocktail of resistance. We want to hold on to the seed. Even though the seed has immense potential to become a beautiful plant, we'd rather hold on to it than bury it. We'd rather have a tight grip on the ground under our feet because it's easier to stay there. And so before we begin talking about change, this is the second step. The first step is knowing the destination, seeing the possible. Second step is dealing with the enormity. And this is actually called confronting the obstacles. Because if you don't do this now, those obstacles will come up and you will be unaware of them and you'll shut it down. So we have to look at, as we meet resistance, that it's naturally imbuing itself from our lives in the process. We need to be able to call out what's happening. And when we can name those things, we are much more likely to healthily address them. And so this is orbital resistance. The tendency we have like a spaceship trying to take off to just stay within the gravitational pole of the planet we currently are on and not go to where we're trying to get. So how do we break orbital resistance? And now we are ready to start looking at the actual process of change. We'll see you next time. Feel free to get a hold of me uh, at my website, tylerkleberger.com. I love continuing the conversation. Uh, there's also plenty of reading material that you can feel free to dive into if you'd like, if you're into that kind of thing. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I look forward to continuing this adventure with you next time.